Welcome to Fur What It's Worth. An introduction to and exploration of the furry fandom. I'm a horrible person. You'd leave stuff laying around? You know what they say, lemons happen. No, no, you can't do that because I seriously think of Five Nights at Fred Meyer every time someone says that. And when lemons happen, you go to the store, buy some eggs, some pie dishes, and make a delicious lemon merengue pie. Well, we have a choice here. Yeah, tell them what our choice is. What are the choices? Limbago in Idaho. What the hell? Even if it'll make you fat. There are certain women I just want to bitch slap. <laughs> so in summary, people are awful. <laughs> it's it's kind of true. Because who doesn't like pie? You know who loves pie? Today's Two Fools, Fire Breath, and Nuka. Hey, hey, we're here with For What It's Worth. Hello, everyone. I am here uh, in Canada, as I usually am, with another fellow Canadian. Oh, hi there, eh? I, I just realized something. We're... What? There's only Canadians here. We're... Oh, my. Well, that's... That's that's unusual. why did they leave us in charge? What fool allowed this to happen? I I, I think we're gonna have uh, our, our 1812 of for what it's worth this I time around. Feel, I feel so powerful. <laughs> I'm, I'm unaccustomed to this this level of freedom. <laughs> eh, it's 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 a thing, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of sad. I've never seen two people go so mad with so little power before. <laughs> Hey, gotta start somewhere, you know. We're supposed to be humble in Canada, right? right? We're nice, humble. So it's like, oh, just a little power, just a teaser, a test to see how we're doing, probably. Then they won't suspect it when we uh, swoop in and take over. First, for what it's worth, then the world. Nobody expects the Canadian Inquisition. Never. But uh, I guess it, I guess we should do an impression of a show then, just to keep them uh, keep them on their toes, to keep them thinking that we're 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 being good little Canadians. So uh, how about them Oilers, eh? Oh, God. I moved away from Edmonton so I could avoid that. <laughs> Although now, now, now I live there in Montreal, so now it's the Canadians. Yeah, they, 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 there was this guy that died recently, an old player, mm. and everyone's like, oh, my God, poor guy, he's dead. And it's uh, there's a huge controversy. I don't follow hockey. I'm a bad you Canadian, and me but it's on the news everywhere, so I have no choice but to read and see it. So now that we've alienated all of our listeners because we're talking about Canadian sports, let's uh, let's talk about what you've been up to. What have you been up to these days, uh, Fire Breath? Actually, I've been uh, playing a little bit of Destiny 2 with a friend who's uh, been in- insistent on uh, playing with me, and it's all right. It's not the greatest. I'm, I'm a very narrative-driven player, so... I'm enjoying it playing with him a lot, but the, the story of the game is kind of obfuscated and not that mm. great. But the gameplay is great, and on top of that, uh, I've been we're, I've just bought the new uh, Stanley Parable uh, <gasps> re-release with additional content. Oh my god! And boy, am I laughing! Oh my god, I love the original Stanley Parable, and I'm not gonna lie, I just played the deluxe edition last night. It's so good. Uh, I, I, I haven't touched the new content yet. I'm only on the old one yet. I'm just getting back into the thick of things. And there's a few endings I've already found that I hadn't found the first time mm. around. So I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I missed that. For, for those who for those so, who've never played it, highly, highly recommend the Stanley Parable. It is the more blind you can go into it, the funnier and better it is. I'm, I will just say that if you're used to playing games, especially first person games, you will laugh yeah. a lot. Because it does make fun of all the tropes, and it's great. Yeah. 
so myself, I guess, so in addition to, to playing the Stanley Parable as well, great minds think alike. Um, oh, yeah. I've also been uh, trying to fill the void in my soul left by completing Elden Ring a few weeks ago. So I've been playing Cyberpunk 2077, which I, I had not played until recently. I, I, I didn't jump on the bandwagon uh, a year ago. I waited for mm-hmm. all the bugs to get patched. And uh, they... I- I've actually played it when it came out, and I played it on PC, and it was surprisingly bug-free for my experience. I experienced a few, but nowhere near as bad as some people, and only once did I have to restart the game because of a game-breaking bug, and that's it, throughout my entire first playthrough, so... I, I, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it is a fun game. Not the greatest, I'm like, but a very I'm like good 40 one. hours into it, and I haven't had a single game crash. Uh, I've had just a couple of tiny little graphical glitches, but they've been super minor. Um, it's just been fun. Like I love cyberpunk as an aesthetic. It's probably my favorite aesthetic. So just getting to... I, I don't think I've, I've done like one or two story missions, and in very Fallout-esque fashion, I've just fucked around for the last 40 hours, just running around... Uh, beating people up and finding random things to do in this big, silly cyberpunk uh, sandbox. So I've been loving it. Of course, in in true Nuka fashion, uh, in the cyberpunk universe, I have like the lowest intelligence possible. I'm very stupid. I know nothing about computers. What I do have is gorilla arms and and maxed out bodies. So in this world of smart people with laptops and computers, I'm dumbly ripping doors off their hinges and punching people to intimidate them. Uh, it's great to be a big, dumb gorilla in a, a world full of very bright, intelligent, computer-savvy people. <laughs> fun fun fact, uh, when I did uh, the street fights, the one under the bridge in like middle of whatever, the old, uh, the previous, the, the, the old veteran yeah. guy, I actually did not take any damage with him because gorilla of arms. gorilla arms. All I did were heavy attacks and just timed them right, and he never was able to get back to me. <laughs> I, I I was surprised I was able to pull that one out. I have so yeah. I have been amused by the fact that they are considered non-lethal weapons, and yet, like the first thing I did when I because I'm, I'm max level for body, the first thing I did is I punched someone and blew their head off. I'm like that seems slightly slightly more than non-lethal. It's less, less than, than lethal, lethal if we follow today's <laughs> parlance in, uh, in quote unquote what they call non-lethal. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good game. I really did enjoy it. A few things that were frustrating with it, but very good game nonetheless. So I, I feel obliged. This has been like Canadians talking for five or six minutes here. I feel obliged to have some American content. So what better way uh, to add some American content than with uh, this message, which is totally, totally not coerced, totally just uh, uh, um, off the off, cuff, off the, off the cuff you know? reading of of a fortune cookie from from our good friend Brew. Rue, let's uh, let's hear how your uh, your cookie segment is going. Go for it, Rue. We're demanding it. Will he reuse another one? Is he ready? Is he going to bed with pastries again? It's Rue's cookie time. Not sponsored by Betty Crocker. No, no, you can't make me. No, I won't. No. Fine. Fine. Dun 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 dun
Your dreams will become a reality in bed with the cookie. Can I go now? Can you let me go? <laughs> oh, that real. Uh, uh, he always says... Always the life of the party. He right? always says the craziest things. Uh, that one I'll remember for a long time. Yeah. Speaking of a long time, it's been a long time. I have to go to the bathroom. So let's take a break. All right, uh, I'll do the same, I guess. Back from, ugh, I feel so much lighter all of a sudden. I do, at least a, uh, at least a couple pounds. At least, ugh, best weight loss program ever. <laughs> all right, so here we are uh, today doing furry science with Nuka. Oh, that's what we're doing, awesome. The, yes. the me, well, the me episode, gonna... I'm okay with this. <laughs> oh yes, it's all about you, such a cat. Uh, but we're not gonna do furry science, we're gonna do Talking about furry science with you. I'm okay with this. So I, 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 I guess people have known you on our podcast for a little while, but let's say we have new listeners. How would you describe yourself? Say, hi, I'm Nuka and... Hello, I'm Nuka and I'm an alcoholic. Well, that's oh, a start. Sorry, sorry, reflex, reflex. Um, and a very tired cliche joke. <laughs> um, right, so uh, I guess I'm, I'm a furry uh, and a psychologist. I was a furry before I was a psychologist. Uh, so I was a furry, God, I really get back into it back in 2006, seven, eight, sometime I was in, I was an undergrad at the time and uh, I got into it through a friend who I, I forever loved shows with furry characters in it, but I didn't know that this thing called furry existed. I was just an awkward kid in school who like had pictures of Mewtwo and random furry characters taped all over his locker and kind of hid it from everyone else because I thought it was weird. And then come university. Uh, my friend Ocean, he, he he was working on a group project with me. I didn't know he was a furry. He didn't know that I was not a furry. Um, but he saw my, my laptop one day. He's like, oh, you're a furry because I had a, a furry background. I'm like, oh, oh, that thing. Don't, don't pay attention to that. And he's like, no, 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 you're a furry. I'm one too. I'm like, what the hell is a furry? So they dragged me out to a local furry meetup in Edmonton. And the rest, they say, is history. I was uh, super huge. I, I, I sort of fell into it as most new furries do. I uh, went out to every meetup I could, tried to make it out to a convention. I really wanted a fursuit from day one just because I saw them and they looked amazing. Um, but very quickly, I was like, you know, the, the scientist in me, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I want to know all about this. I'm like, so we're like, where, 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 where do all the furries learn about furry stuff? Like, I want, I want to read the furry manual, right? I want to know all the rules. I want to know all the... And that stuff didn't really exist, right? There was not... No one was studying furries. I'm like, well, like, how many of them are there? And everyone's like, oh, oh. Like, what... Like, you know, what should I pick as a fursona species? Like, what are the most popular ones? And everyone's like, I don't know, wolves or something. And and I... It, a fox. Yeah, fox. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had all these questions just because I was like, so, you know, when you... When you I'm, I'm a nerd. So when I get into this, I want to get in like, like you know, both feet in the water uh, and go. And I was surprised a bit by how 
little guidance I had. This was very much a kind of self-serve fandom. Um, and there was no instruction manual for it. So that kind of stuck with me. Uh, I graduated from undergrad, got to grad school, and uh, I was going to grad school to be a psychologist. And one of the things that you have to do when you become, when you go to, to grad school is you have to pick a research topic. So you got to study something. And I'm like, oh God, you know, what do I study, right? And everyone else in my department is studying like big important issues, prejudice and discrimination or close relationships or self-esteem and, and you know, the self. So of course I'm like, well, I like video games and I'm into this furry thing. So I'm going to study video games and this furry thing and just completely, uh, just, just make my, my hobbies, my research. And, uh, yeah. So I got lucky enough that Dr. Kathleen Gerbasi, uh, who was kind of, kind of pioneered a lot of this research in the furry fandom, at least she, uh, um, an anthrozoologist from New York state, she happens to be doing just starting some research around that time. And she gave a talk at a, a nearby furry convention. So I got in touch with her. And since then, since like 2000, I guess 10 was the first time we worked together uh, on a survey. We've been doing surveys on the furry fandom and we've gotten new folks along the way, but that's uh, sort of how I fell into it, smashing together my professional career and my hobby. <laughs> hey, you know what? You're not working a day in your life doing that, apparently. Uh, some days it feels like work, but, but for the most part, yeah, I, I will say next to being a Mythbuster, I feel like I have one of the coolest jobs in the world. So, well, I, I would agree, uh, honestly, between you and I, and probably like our six or seven subscribers, uh, if multimedia didn't work for me, I was going to go in psychology and I already thought, Hey, I'm going to do studies on furries, but then that did not go that plan. Right. <laughs> So, no, I, I'm really glad that somebody actually thought about this other than just me. And the fact that you're doing it is great. Uh, so we've already established that you're not a fox. You know, you, you didn't go through the training wheels of the fandom, as you said. So what is your persona? Oh, right. Yeah. So I get asked this a lot. Uh, so like people, so if you don't know, Nuka is a, a, a blue cat. That's my persona. Um, I, I don't, a lot of people attach like a ton of significance to their personas. Uh, for me, it's just a lot of super tiny bits of trivia about me that have combined. So he's a cat because I like cats and I'm terrified of dogs. So that's why he's a cat. Uh, I'm sorry. He, he wears a lab coat because I'm a scientist. Uh, he's blue because I'm colorblind and blue is one of the few colors that I can see. Um, so like it's, it's people attached like, oh, it's, oh what's the significance of this? I'm like, oh, blue because I'm colorblind and I can see blue and it's a pretty nice color. Um, well, I, I will admit that blue is the superior color, even if I can see it, no problem. <laughs> so I, I approve of your choice. Uh, what made you decide to go with Nuka? Oh, the name? As a name, uh, I mean. I'm always, I'm always, I, it's my big shame that I go with Nuka, or that when people ask me where Nuka came from, it's, it's my biggest shame. So people assume it is from Fallout, and I, I want people to believe that, because I'm a, I'm a diehard Fallout fan. It's one of my favorite franchises. And I wish I could say I was named after Fallout, and I am not. I am not named after Nuka Cola from Fallout, although it is a very, very happy coincidence that that's the case. It made uh, playing through Nuka World in Fallout 4 just very surreal to me. I'm like my name, this is like me world. I love it. Uh, no, it's it's much more shameful than that. My name. I uh, like any good new furry shamelessly stole the name from a character in a web comic. Uh, <laughs> well, I, 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 so long before I was a furry, there was a webcomic that I, I read called screwed from an artist by the name of Melissa Jewell. Uh, I'd love, she was like basically my, my gateway into furry. I loved Mewtwo as a character when I was growing up, like, I don't know why 
Uh, I, I didn't know why. I just thought, oh, he's kind of cool. He's like a cat thing, but not a cat thing. So I really liked that. And I didn't know there was a word for it. And then I found this webcomic where it was kind of like the, the stepping stone between Mewtwo's and furries. So she drew these characters who were kind of Mewtwo-like, but they were also kind of like Anthro cats. And so I'm like, oh, they're like neat looking Mewtwo's. I can get behind that. And then it was kind of like my my little training wheels into furry. And I discovered, oh, you, you can have walking, talking animal characters that just aren't Mewtwo's. You can do that. That's a thing. Um, but you had this character named Nuka, and he was a little bratty thing, a little green anthro cat sort of kind of Mewtwo looking thing. Um, but he was a bratty, obnoxious little thing. And I loved him because I was like a shy, timid, little nerdy kid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would I would go to school, come home, and then just like go on the internet all day because I didn't have friends and I was kind of scared to be around people. Uh, but Nuka was like outgoing and bratty and mischievous. And so when I was online, I could sort of take on this character of Nuka and I could be a lot more confident and bold online than I could be in person. So shamelessly stole the name, shamelessly. I think my my original profile picture was just the picture of Nuka from the webcomic. And then years later, he became his own thing, right? So at some point when I got into furry, I'm like, well, okay, I can't just parade around this this character that isn't mine. Uh, So I kept the name Nuka because by that point, that's what everyone knew me as online. But I I changed the color. I made him his own character. He's now a cat instead of a stolen webcomic character. But that's my my deep, dark shame is that... uh, uh, and I'm, I'm certain I'm not the only one who's done it, right? But a uh, furry who who borrowed liberally from another source uh, for my persona. <laughs> All right, so you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Nuka is named after a fictional soft drink in the Fallout <laughs> universe. Uh, if, if you want to be really technical where, where the name comes from, it's actually technically inspired by um, Nuka from uh, Lion King 2, I believe it was. There's the uh, the the character named Nuka. So so the webcomic character named Nuka was inspired name wise by that character, and I think in Swahili it means like garbage or worthless or something. Because he was an un- in the webcomic Nuka was like an unwanted bastard child. So you know this name garbage or worthless. So all right. Well, that was very interesting. Thank you very <laughs> Sorry, much for sharing I, 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 all this I, I, import, important important information about you. A super long rambly. Uh, focused on me uh, uh, answer. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry to tell you, but the entire episode is focused on you today. I know. It's so it's so weird. I, I So I had to say this. When I first got into doing research, my colleague, Stephen Rayson, um, he, the best advice he ever gave me was be humble, right? Do not, don't let this get to your head. Like if you get a publication or if a news organization interviews you, it's so easy to let that go to your head and to make you think you're more important than you are. And he's like, nothing is more pathetic than like a small time researcher who thinks he's like world famous and a big deal. And I, I've always kind of followed that. And oh, my God, it has helped me so much. <laughs> well, uh, I think that would be good life advice for anybody. Yeah. If we're honest. Yeah, in general, don't don't be full of yourself. You can so easily be humiliated and humbled. Um, yeah. No, no one likes a, a conceited jackass. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great way of putting it. So now that we've we've basically went around who you are and how you got here, I think the next step in the questioning of this interview or interrogation, however you want to call it, uh, would be what kind of scientist are you? Like, if you had to describe to somebody to me who's a complete and utter derp, what kind of scientist you are? I you said you're a psychologist, great, but 
what does that entail? Right. So this is something that people often mix up. They hear psychologists and they think, oh, sitting on the couch, doing therapy. So often question. Tell me about your phagia. Yeah. Like oftentimes the first question I'll get is like, oh, so are you like a Freudian psychologist? Are you, uh, what kinds of things do you treat? And, and the, the, the sad reality is there are other parts of psychology besides just the therapy part. Now, like 90% of psychology uh, in practice is the therapy part, right? So the, the most psychologists out there, if you were to pull them out, you know, pull names out of a bag, 90% of the time, you'll get a person who does therapy. Um, but researchers exist out there in psychology. I'm one of them. So if a fraction of psychologists are researchers, then a small fraction of those fraction or that fraction are, are what are called social psychologists. And that's what I am. So uh, a social psychologist studies um, basically how the world around us affects us. So if a cognitive psychology studies the mind like a computer and, and mental processes and a behavioral psychologist studies how we learn, uh, social psychologists basically ask, how does the world out there affect us? So social psychology is kind of a misnomer. It, people think it, it, it necessarily involves other people. It, it sh it's more accurate to call it like environmental psychology or external psychology. So how does the world around us, the environments, the people in it, change the way we think, feel, or behave. And so I, I study that. And there's a million different offshoots of social psychology, different places you could take it. Uh, I happen to take it in the direction of fandoms and fan culture, because basically very, very few people study that psychology. I could go on a whole rant on that, but the gist of it is no one takes leisure seriously. We, we treat leisure activities as the thing that's not worth studying. And yet, Leisure is the thing that we spend, you know, it's the thing that we would all like to be doing if we weren't working. And so I think it, we owe it to ourselves to spend some time studying the thing that we would love to be doing if we didn't have to pay the rent. That's kind of important. What would we do if we could choose to do it? No, that, I think that's a very valid way of looking at it. Because why do we enjoy something? And why does somebody enjoy something that someone else doesn't, you know? <laughs> and the fact that, we all define ourselves a lot through our work and our leisure. I, it, it seems to me as a complete and other non-psychologist person, like both should be as important in terms of research. Well, if anything, I would argue that what we do in our spare time is more important to who we are. Again, you're, you know, if you have to pay rent, you'll do most things in service of paying that rent. Like you'll, you'll work some job for some company you don't agree with, or you'll do some, some labor that you, that you hate to your core, right? And it doesn't represent you. It's just, you know, if I work at a convenience it store- It pays the bills. Yeah, if I work at a convenience store stocking shelves, it's not because that's a deep part of who I always wanted to be. It's the thing I have to do to not die, right? Um, what's more telling of who I am is, okay, now that I'm off the clock and I'm at home and I've got four hours to spare, how do I fill that time? That's a much better indicator of of who I am. And we have this, this in- um. In psychology, there's this idea of what's called a projective test, which is, you know, give a person a blank palette and let them fill it, right? Or give a person, a, 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 you know, an empty page and let them fill it. And you get so much of what a person is by having them fill that blank page. And that's what I think leisure is, right? When you have this spare time, how you choose to fill it says so much about you. No, that, that makes absolute sense. It really does. Because it's a choice that we can make consciously for ourselves and not through coercive environment yeah because like you said you have to pay the bills if oh you need a job if you don't want to die out of hunger or die from ex exposure to the elements 
you know, to be able to basically survive in today's society, you need a job. Yep. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> but <it's> always, <laughs> but that's an entirely different story. <laughs> well, it's always funny to me how when you meet someone, one of the first questions we've kind of been trained to ask, you know, is what do you do for a job, right? We, we always kind of, yep. we almost blurt it out reflexively as, as if this tells us something interesting about this person. To me, uh, the first thing I ask is, what are your hobbies? What do you do? What do you do for fun? Because you learn so much more about a person. Like if I find out that someone reads books for fun or someone goes to sporting events or someone LARPs for fun, I've learned way more about that person than finding out that, oh, they they work uh, uh, doing at a call center for a moderately sized company. Like that doesn't tell me anything about them. True. And that you say this and it's funny because for the last two years, like just after, just before I should say uh, COVID, that's what I start to think about and start doing myself instead of asking, so what do you do for a living? I say, what do you do for fun? Yeah. And, and then bring it later on what they're doing for a living because like you said, I, I, I found out, hey, I'm learning way more about what they do for fun than what they do for a living. Yeah. Some people are lucky enough to be able to do what they want to do for a living. Some others, not necessarily because of circumstances, because of bad or choices they made not through their own fault or maybe it's just the the the, the, the like i graduated in 2007 in a bubble and then 2008 happened i didn't have much choice in terms of what i could do yeah <laughs> so that sucked for me but that doesn't mean it's the same for everyone either some actually do what they want and that's great and that tells me something about them yeah but at the same time like you said i figured out through that reality that i lived through Hey, asking you what you do for fun. Oh, I go hunt. Okay, so you you might be into guns. You might be into the outdoors. You might. It tells me so much more than, like you said, I work in a call center. Is there any more soul crushing job than that? And I mean, if you if you'd asked me prior to like when I was in university before going to grad school, you know, oh, what do you do? I worked in a Coca Cola warehouse and I worked as a dishwasher for a bunch of years. I'm like that. What does that tell you about me? Like, would you have been able to predict that I was a furry? Would you have been able to predict what kind of a person I was from that? Like, that doesn't give you anything. Nope, nope, not whatsoever. Though it does explain the new Coca-Cola edition. <laughs> uh, that's, man, I could do an entire episode just on what it's like working working for a, uh, working in a Coca-Cola warehouse, the stories, my God. <laughs> we should we should do uh, an episode on uh, on jobs, like, like you know, our, our first job or that kind of thing. That might be a fun episode. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 take a note. Yeah. Put a note in the log. <laughs> All right. Now, now we, 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 we're, we're better acquainted with uh, the kind of scientist you are. We understand better what you're doing in that uh, social psychology field. So what's a day in the life of Nuka Furry Scientist TMCR? Yeah. Um... Okay, so yeah, research researchers. Everyone has this idea that, like, as a researcher, your your day is spent like you go into the lab and you spend eight hours doing lab work, and that's what you know. It's this one homogenous position that you do the same, you know, kind of. And uh, I guess I can only speak technically for my my experience as a psychologist, but I'm almost certain that anyone else in the sciences will tell you the same thing. It it is a, a giant. You wear many hats, so on, on any given day. Uh, I could be spending six hours putting together the ethics for my study. On another day, I could be spending 10 hours uh, analyzing data from a study. That's the one everyone thinks, oh, you're analyzing data. But, you know, on another given day, I could be writing up a paper. Another day, I could be reviewing a papers for journals. 
another day I could be teaching, right? I teach two to three times a week, depending on when my classes fall. Uh, so I do teaching um, on other days still. Uh, I'm doing field work. I'm going out to conventions or I'm talking to furries and getting ideas and making, you know, networking and getting ideas for other studies. Uh, I do other research besides furry research. So on any given day, uh, any of those things could have a furry flavor to them or they could have a media violence flavor to it or a prejudice and discrimination flavor to it, depending on which line of research I'm talking about. So, so I'm going to stop you for a second. You say you do other research than furry. Well, first, that's blasphemy for you. And second, what are they? Because I'm sure people will be interested. You mentioned video games earlier, but I'm sure it's not just video games as a research topic. Right. So I, 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 always, I always allude to this because I, I don't want to get into fights over it. Uh, but I, I'm one of the people ruining video games for everyone. I do a video game violence research. Um, I wrote a book about it. Although I say that jokingly, I say that very tongue in cheek, because uh, the more you get into the research, the more you realize it's not as, as sensationalist as people make it out to be. The research suggests that um, if you consume violent media, it's, it's a risk factor. It's like a drop in the bucket. It technically increases your risk of engaging in aggression, which is a far cry from saying that it makes you into a violent shooter. It would be like me saying, hey, if you... Uh, for every McDonald's cheeseburger you eat, you're increasing your risk of heart disease. I don't think anyone would argue with the veracity of that statement, right? What we can quibble over is what do we do with that information, right? So you can go anywhere from saying, well, okay, who cares? You're welcome to put whatever you want in your body all the way to the other extreme and say, we should shut down McDonald's, right? And there's a world of moderate responses in the middle. We can acknowledge media violence effects without, uh, uh, you, you mean the world is not binarily white and black in right. terms of positions? There's gradients and various shades of gray. What is this? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so that, that's what I study. I wrote a book about it. Uh, specifically, if you want to dig down deeper, what I do is I study immersion into media violence. So not just does playing violent media make you more aggressive. We've known about that for decades. But starting to like chip away at, okay, well, what, what is the active ingredient, right? So for me, I studied immersion. Like, okay, so is it, if you get into the game more, does it have a bigger effect on you than if you just kind of play the game and go, this is stupid, I'm not getting anything out of this. Um, I tried to study that for a few years. As it turns out, it's really difficult to manipulate immersion. Um, it's one of those things that seems really easy to manipulate until you try to do it. Well, as somebody who plays games and has a very hard time immersing myself or can get very easily out of it, it's so dependent on the game, not just the graphics, but the storyline, the, the controls, and so many variables that you have to take into account. I have no doubt it's hard for you to just try and find a way to make it standardized for everyone. Okay, this is the perfect secret sauce to make everyone immersed. I'm like, yeah, I can't see that happening. Well, so there's three big problems. The first one you mentioned, right? There's individual differences. What's immersive for one person is not immersive, but it gets even worse for a couple of other reasons. So take that problem compounded by the fact that we can't even trust people to know what immersion is, right? When I say, hey, did you get immersed into that movie? Well, when you if you say yes, what do you mean by that? Do you mean, yes, I identified with the characters in it? Or yes, you tricked my senses into thinking I was really there? Or yes, you distracted me from my day-to-day -day life, or yes, I really found that world engaging. Like any one of those could potentially cause you to say, oh yes, I was immersed. And yeah, so what, that's true. And then it gets even worse on top of all of that uh, because we ourselves in psychology can't agree on what the hell 
counts as immersion, right? If I did trick your senses into thinking, if, if I can get, put a VR goggle on you and you, you for a moment go, oh, is this real, right? Did I immerse you or not? Some people will say yes, some people will say no, that's not real immersion. So all three of those factors stack on top of each other and make this just a next to impossible puzzle to unpack, uh, which is why, by the way, whenever someone says, oh, 3D glasses make that, that movie so immersive, or oh, when I put on the VR goggles, it makes the game more immersive. I immediately assume people don't know what they're talking about because you can't know, right? Maybe you enjoy it more. Maybe it's a more compelling experience for you, but to say specifically, oh, I know for a fact that VR goggles make the experience immersive for everyone is, is it's too simple, right? When I talk about all those problems, it's, it's too simple to, See? to yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, to me, when people say uh, back in my day, you know, when 3D movies were becoming a thing and you had to have the glasses that had like uh, controlled battery control that would f change the framing, people were like, oh, the 3D movies are so much better. I'm like, dude, I can't stand those. I get a headache because I'm trying to focus on something in the background that's blurry because it's the movie that's made like that. And the glasses were so heavy, they would just pull me right out every single time. So what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for someone else, but we already established that. One, well, a couple of really good examples of this uh, for video games, right? Imagine we're playing video games, you and I. Um, for me, a deal killer in video games is bad writing, right? If, if yep. the writing is terrible, you can have the most beautiful world in the world, or the most beautiful world imaginable, like picture-perfect graphics. If the characters are flat and the writing is garbage, I can't play the game. I can't get into it. And yet... I will tolerate absolute dumpster fire graphics. Like in Cyberpunk 2077, this beautiful world, the first thing I did was drop all the graphics settings because I would rather it play smooth than um, look pretty. I know for other people, God forbid if the frame rate drops below 60 frames per second, or God forbid if they can't have the reflection off of the water or they can't see a perfect reflection of themselves in a mirror as they go by, or if they see like any kind of graphical glitch, they go game broken, zero to 10, I can't play this, right? So what makes a game immersive is totally, and, and they're perfectly valid in saying that. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. So everyone has different, you know, thresholds and things that trigger them. And when I say trigger, I don't mean it in the negative way. Yeah, just think, just things that break the immersion for them. So yeah. yeah. So, so that's a, a it, it's interesting because we can make a little bit of a parallel between what you do with your video game research and your furry research that way because it bring it, you talk about immersion in video games and I'm thinking about the definition of furry you know ask ten furries what furry is and you're gonna get at least twelve answers yeah. is the joke that's been running out for like over twenty years now so I'm getting that same vibe that they're completely different, but at the very base of it, there's a lot of similarities between those two. Yeah, the, the lines of research kind of inform one another. And I think most researchers will, will do that. Like you might have two or three different lines of research, but to some extent, one kind of informs the other, right? So both video games and furry are recreational uh, activities for most people, not everyone, but for most people. So they can inform each other in that regard. Um, Things like immersion, there's overlap between that. Um, yeah, so at any given day, um, I'm usually doing, you know, multiple lines of research, you know, either writing or putting together studies or analyzing data or teaching students or any of these things. Uh, it keeps keeps it busy. <laughs> I'm going to ask you the question that's on everyone's lips right now, I'm sure, and that's going to be excessively controversial after what we just talked about. Does removing your fursuit head in public actually destroy the magic and slash immersion or not? 
Uh, Let's hear it from you. you you're the expert. Uh, so my, an- my, my answer would be for whom? I <laughs> uh, see. I was expecting it depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends for whom. That's another annoying yeah, thing that's, about that's social fine. psychologists is that we we're always looking at what we call moderators, right? So for whom, when, in what context, at what time, right? So, um, you know, for some, that's actually been, been a fantastic new line of research because for me as a fursuiter, I was always just kind of taught, you know, from the very beginning, oh, you don't take off your head in public, you maintain a character, but there is this sort of generational difference. Look at fursuiters who are over, say, the age of about 30, 35, and uh, they'll swear by the fact that you really aren't supposed to take your your head off in public, but then you talk to like a 20-year-old fursuiter, and they'll say, oh, I put the suit on when I want to, I take it off when I want to, like, it's, why are you, it's a thing I'm doing for fun, why are you adding rules and leash, like, how are you telling me how I'm supposed to have fun, right? It, it seems a little bit strange to them. So uh, my answer would be generationally, like what age is the person? Are you talking about the person first suiting or the person watching the first suitor? That's a different set of answers. Um, yeah, see, as one of those older than 30, 35 people, for me, it's a big no-no because when I started in furry back in 1999, first suits were so few and far between you were first suiting for yourself, but you were also first suiting for others mm-hmm. because there was no such thing as 20% first suit people, uh, first suiters, when you were at a con. If you saw five first suit at a 500 people con, that was a lot back then. So it was always seen as something that was a little bit more sacred because, hey, this person is doing this and they're actually taking the time to embody their character. And it, it came with that, that, that. I don't want to say sacredness, but it kind of felt like that, where you had to respect this individual in the first suit because it was something that was big at the time. And in return, they would respect you as a, a person who was watching it as the audience by saying, I will remain in character until I, I, I have to leave. And or if there was an emergency, then, yeah, it's like, take that head off. We don't care. Your life is more important than your character. Right. So. Now that the, 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 the fursuits are so much more ubiquitous, I feel like people don't see them as special anymore. And that's something that was probably kind of lost in the time that the, the the fandom has grown so much. But again, that's that's very subjective. You yeah. Know? Well, it's easy, especially when you're, I, I'm saying this as, a, I'm going to say an older fur, I'm 35, so I'm kind of straddling that weird zone between the younger. I'm nah, still young. All the young first say I'm, I'm, I'm old and all the old first say I'm still young. So I'm in kind of that sweet spot in the middle there. Um, but I will say that there's this interesting generational divide, and it's really easy for older furries to look at the newer furries and say something's been lost, um, and very easy for the younger furries to say something's been gained and there's nothing special worth holding on to in the old thing. Um, I think that fursuiting is seen as much more accessible today than it was 30 years ago, right? It's a lot easier. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's bigger choice of the uh, fursuit designers. Um it's much easier to get a hold of the materials to produce fursuits or to produce your own if you decide to. There's a million how-to guides out there. Um, so it's seen, like the function of it is different. The accessibility to it is different. Um, even something like a fursona itself and what it means to a person. I think it's older furries who will say that my fursona is deep and meaningful uh, and like a huge part of me. And to younger furries, I think that's the case too. But maybe not to the same extent, right? Maybe it's a little bit more like an avatar for me or a handle or a nickname or a, a cute little representation of myself rather than like 
an expression of my deepest self, right? And that carries yeah. over into things like how you fursuit, the purpose of fursuiting. If fursuiting is just a thing you do for fun, then why shouldn't you pop the head on and off whenever you feel like it, right? Um, Absolutely. But if, if fursuiting is this sacred expression of some part of yourself, then you know, absolutely. It means something very different to take your head off. So, um, yeah. So again, it depends. It, de it depends. Yeah. That's the only thing about talking to scientists is you don't get easy answers from us. See, I, 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 I'm, I'm hearing a lot of what you're saying and all I can think of is it's the same thing as talking to a lawyer. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because, because yeah, you're still dealing with this, like people, I get this, I, I teach, right. I, I have 150 students in any given semester and laypersons and when you're first getting into it you want a nice simple answer just just give me the answer damn it and it's the person who who knows the subject well enough who can tell you well you know it, the more you, it's the dunning-kruger effect the more you know about it the more you realize how little you know about it and how many caveats you have to put on on everything there are no simple answers in the world <laughs> even though we wish it was simple right <laughs> Like, like this segment, I mean, it was super interesting. We could go on for probably hours, but I think at this point, um, I need a refill of water. Uh, you probably need to rest that mouth of yours a little bit. <laughs> All right, we you take know. a break. We take a break. Yeah, I, I think a break, uh, even if no Kit Kats are involved, not sponsored, by the way. Uh, Yet. I think that would be a good thing. <laughs> no one needs to hear me talk for a half an hour, so... Right. Yeah, it's been half an hour already and we could go for more. So uh, stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back after these messages. They asked me how well I understood theoretical physics. I said I had a theoretical degree in physics. They said, welcome aboard. You're listening to For What It's Worth. better i'm full and empty at the same time now it's great how about it's you been, it's been far too long since i've talked about myself so i'm glad we're back the question i have have you ever done that before? Uh, i'll take that as a no so it's a great thing ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great that's great so um before I let you go on about yourself again, being all self-centered as a cat, as every cat is, um, I want to talk to our audience real quick. Uh, as you know, we need idents. What's an ident? An ident is basically something that the American FCC, not the Canadian CRTC, makes us do, but we're in Canada this time. Go figure that. Cross borders are weird. And uh, to make sure that you know who you're listening to. So, you know, we have to put that around the midway bit of the podcast. And we're asking you fine listeners, all six of you, seven now, I have a friend who recently joined, apparently, uh, that uh, to, to, to send us uh, your, your items through SpeakPipe, through email with wave recordings, you decide. 
Uh, all the information is available on forwhatitsworth.com or if you are on our Telegram channel, you can join that. The information to join our Telegram channel, I believe, is also on the website. So plenty of ways for you to talk to us, join us, send uh, send your ident as a WAV file, ideally. But if you have a prefer MP3 because you have such a huge file and it's bigger than what the email can send, you can send it at cast at forwhatitsworth.com. Now, with this said, um, there's another piece we need to do because, you know, all this stuff costs money. And how do we raise money, Mr. Nuka? Well, we raise money by tricking people. I mean, asking people to donate to the show through the lovely website, Patreon. And you hear that music coming in right now. It's beautiful. I love it. So angelic, isn't it? It's the lovely, lovely Patreon. I'm willing to put aside talking about me for a second to talk about amazing Patreons like me who contributes to the show. Patreons, in addition to the wonderful Patreon, Nuka, uh, like Sly, Ashton Sergal, Jarl the Spirit Wolf, Big Bear Luno, Geekware, Koru, Bubble Whip, Adalor Soulfair, Moss, Chapel Grip, Aussie K, Black Bald Rick, Ligris, Kit, Ichigo Okami, Simone Parker, Guardian Lion, Rifka Fox, and Harlan Fox, who are all blessed to be in the same category as I am, this wonderful group of people contributing to this amazing show. We don't take advertising revenue. Uh, You single-handedly help fund the show, so all of this is your fault, so thank you. Now, I, if you like, I can almost okay. feel like the PBS thing. This show was was made possible by viewers like you. Like, if you would like to become one of these lovely people in the same category as myself in this ego trip of mine, you can go to Patreon.com/fwiw. Ah, so 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 the humil- the humility is definitely gone out the window for the for this segment. The mask is down now. The Canadian mask is down. I think. I think doing this American podcast has gotten to me, and now I just want it to be the me show. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, I, I, and here I am always avoiding the spotlight. You know what? It's all yours. Talk about yourself. Uh, let's talk more about you so you, everyone knows how awesome you are and how important you are and how you control everything from your cat-like perspective. So getting back on topic of, of Nuka, you know, uh, we've can, established. Can I, just, can I just say I actually hate this? I'm yucking <laughs> it up. I actually hate this. This focus on me. Oh my god. It's all right. It's just one episode. Don't worry uh, about it. Then you can go back to being your little kitten in a box or something. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 now with this said, we've established you're a scientist. You're a furry. You do psychology. You do social psychology and video game stuff. Now. You, for those who don't know, uh, Nuka is involved with Fur Science, which is a group of people that does furry scientific stuff with furries, not two (laughs) furries difference. Words are important, you know. So now the question I would have is what goes into a furry story? Uh, Not story, study, not story. That's a different kind of thing altogether. (laughs) That's what people do for entertainment purposes. But what goes into that, that furry story is. Geez, I can't speak. Furry study, is it? Uh, <laughs> where do you go? Where do you start? And how do you get to that idea and what you want to know? Yeah, so I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of how much work goes into building a study uh, and sort of putting it together uh, from, from sort of conception because um, 
there's this belief that like uh, uh, we've been spoiled by places like chemistry, like in chemistry, you know, as long as you have the chem, the chemicals and the things in, in the lab, um, you might only, you know, you might be able to run the study in the lab. Then and there you have an idea, you run the study, run it a few times, but like you have your results that day. And that's maybe it's a time-based process and maybe you have to wait for things to interact or change over time. But for the most part, you know, the, the scope of a study may only last for, for a few hours or maybe a few days uh, tops. I know that I'm going to have chemists down my throat for grossly oversimplifying chemistry. Um, in our physics, I took a uh, university physics, right? And you can do, uh, it's a simple, you know, we, we, we would do studies where we measure the speed of light using lasers, right? And so that's something you can do in an afternoon. Um, so I think people get the wrong idea that science is like lots of quick studies. You can bash out a, a dozen studies in a week kind of thing. And it is, it is far more uh, involved than that. Uh, a study starts months beforehand when we're gathering ideas for a study, right? So maybe we're reading existing literature. Maybe we're getting ideas from furries who contact us. Uh, so a lot of our ideas come from furries asking us questions at our talks and saying, hey, you should look at this. And we go, hey, we haven't looked at that yet. We definitely should. Or maybe I'm reading a paper through a scientific journal and I go, oh, they say X, Y, and Z should be true. But I know that that wouldn't be true in the furries fandom. So, I think that so something like, I'm talking about this because I saw it in the, the 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 papers recently. Like the Canadian census was the first census officially asking amongst like all countries, from what I understand, about gender identity, not just sex, but gender identity. And this is the first time we actually have like a hard evidence or hard numbers that are reliable across a population. Now I. I I have taken the the, the first science uh, survey before, and I know that's a question you guys asked. Yeah. So if I say, well, it'd be interesting to see the differences between the furry community versus an actual hard number that we have with an actual population that has, I like to think is a decent sample size. Yeah. The <laughs> you population know? of Canada is a pretty good sample size. Well, 37, <laughs> 38 million people. I, I like yeah. to think it's a good sample size at that point. So. <laughs> Saying, hey, I, I, what would you make out of it? That would, would that be something that somebody could come and say to you and say, hey, do you have answers for that? And be like, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll look into this later or something. Yeah. So certainly. Uh, so for example, I, I don't know what the number. Do you know off the top of your head what the what the census said uh, for the prevalence of trans people is off the top of your head or now? Uh, not right now. But if you if you start talking, I can look it up and come <laughs> back to you with it in a second. So, yeah. So uh, I might hear the number in the newspaper, right? Or someone might quote it. I might go, wow, that's. You know that that that's a number. Uh, I think it's higher in the furry fandom. My observation has been that you know uh, a significant chunk of the furry fandom seems to be uh, trans or non-binary, and so you know the 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 one reality of the Canadian census doesn't seem to be jiving with the reality of of what I see in the furry fandom, and so I might decide to run a study. So maybe I ask the question the same way it was asked on the census to try to keep that consistent, and then see if the numbers differ significantly and if so then i can say oh according to this you know the the furry community has different demographic composition than the general canadian public does because right now uh it says one in 300 adults in uh, canada identify as transgender or non-binary okay so that's putting it at like point uh percent right something like around those lines yeah yeah so at, at which point i would say okay well you know having run run data recently on that uh, depending on which sample you're using, we've seen numbers as high as almost 20% of the furry fandom uh, identifies as transgender or non-binary or agender or genderqueer. So we might say that, oh, well, you know, 
that's a that's a fairly sizable discrepancy there. Now, of course, you have to, you know, if you're doing your due diligence, you'll control for demographic factors like the average Canadian is probably older than the average furry. So you might have to control yeah. for that statistically. Control for the fact that, um, you know, there are normative differences between these. There might be, uh, you know, online culture versus, uh, you know, the average Canadian may not be super online or it's a super geek culture where uh, you tend to find higher rates of LGBTQ people. So you can sort of get into the explanation. So that, that's sort of the second part of research is after you, you've answered the first question, yes, there is a difference, comes the much more interesting question, why? And then you could spend, you know, years going through all the possible explanations, controlling for them. Part of uh, studies, I would think of studies as tools, right? You're designing a tool for a particular job. And oftentimes you have to invent a tool, right? Oh, this exists, this, this question exists. How do I perfectly fabricate a tool that's best designed to answer this question? Uh, and there are no perfect studies. This is something that I have to get across to my students is there are no perfect studies. Every time you design a study to be really good at doing one thing, you've made it really crap at something else. Kind of like if I said design the perfect car by making it faster, you're making it lighter. So a really fast car isn't necessarily going to be very good at towing two tons behind it, right? Whereas a truck that can pull two tons behind it isn't going to get up to 250 miles an hour. Or if so it I, does, it's going to use a whole lot of fuel doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's trade-offs to be made. And so it's the same thing with studies. Um, every time you design a study, you are doing like a feat of, of engineering, right? You are, you are building a device, a tool that is tailor-built to answer one type of question, you know, and oftentimes people don't realize that. So I often get uh, critiques from people, which, which are totally fair. They'll say, oh, your study made this error. You asked this question, but you didn't ask this question. It's like, yes, I didn't ask this question because that wasn't important to the hypothesis we were testing. If we were testing a different hypothesis, that would absolutely be a question we'd have to consider. Um, yeah, so it's it's a ton of stuff goes into designing a study. Uh, you know, what kinds of questions do you ask? Have we asked this before? How much interest is there? Uh, so we, we have we have more questions than we can answer. Um, we've got a giant backlog of questions that furries have asked us to answer. And the problem is, if we put them all into one survey, you would have a 5,000 question survey that no one would answer. Um, so part of it is trying to gauge, okay, what do we, what do we stand to benefit from answering that? How much space is it going to take up? So maybe it's a really interesting question, but if it takes 75 questions to adequately address it, well, that's like half our survey dedicated to answering one question or testing one hypothesis. You know, can we find a more concise way to test it? And, and that's another trade-off, right? So maybe, maybe I, I go with a much smaller scale that's got psychometric problems with it, but at least I can answer the question rather than putting it on the back burner because it just takes up too much space. Um, other times we get asked questions that we've been asked in the past, oh, oh why don't you do a, a, a fursuiter only survey? Well, the problem with that is uh, if we did that, it would only be relevant to say 20 or 25% of the fandom, right? So we're asking, we're building a questionnaire that will completely alienate three quarters of the fandom. They're, they won't be able to do the questionnaire or if they do, they'll say, well, none of these questions are relevant to me. Why would you send this to me? Um, so this is something that we're always sort of considering these trade-offs, trying to design a tool to answer the hypotheses that we want to test. Um, yeah, it's, it's a feat of engineering and we never quite get it right. Well, it's always a question of trade-offs, right? No matter what you do, no matter what you design, whether it's code or a car or project management, I always come back to the holy trinity of project management, you know, the good 
fast and cheap choose to you know it's it's it, it always comes back to that and nothing's ever perfect because that's how the world works essentially at this point it's complex but there's basic stuff that i think we can all agree that the world being un- not perfect is the reality well in, sci- in science is less about finding the perfect uh study and more about gaining in very incremental ways more and more evidence right so my imperfect way of measuring the furry fandom might give me an approximate answer right so maybe i i say okay i've ballparked the number of trans people in the fandom at 20 percent, right people might say well that's an imperfect measure because of x y and z and they're probably totally right right so maybe i refine the measure maybe next time i ask about it in a more nuanced way and i consider more variables and i control for more things and maybe it's not actually 20 percent. maybe it's 17.6 percent, right and then oh well even that had its flaws and so the next time i try it in a different way with a more liberal definition and maybe it's 22 percent. and so the point is every time i do this it's going to be imperfect but i'm it's like throwing darts at a dartboard right eventually i'm going to get kind of close my, my 10 imperfect studies are all kind of dancing around the same answer. So we can say, okay, we may not have a perfect estimate, but we got a pretty good range. We can say it's probably somewhere around here that we're shooting for. And it's a high enough confidence in those results that not just a single result, but all of those results combined that give us, yeah, this is about right. Yeah, we're consistently hitting around this range. So we can reasonably sure it's around this range, even if we'll quibble a bit over what we call decimal dust, right? Is it is it 17.4 or 17.8%, right? Well, we're less important, less interested in that, more important in the, it's around 17% as opposed to like 4% or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that, that's actually making a whole lot of sense. So so now we, we've we completed the, the design phase of the study. What comes next? Yeah, okay, so that's, that's another thing that people often sort of, they, they think, okay, you design a study, you throw it together in a day and you run it tomorrow. And it is, uh, from start to finish, a project can take two to three years. Um, so from the, the, the time that someone pitches an idea to us, they might think when they see the next survey, oh, I don't see my question on there. They must have forgotten about it. Um, we have to think about these projects six months, sometimes a year in advance, because it could take me months to put together the study based on existing literature. Okay, you know, if, if I need a measure of, I don't know, aggression, well, has that measure been designed before? I have to scour the literature and find five different measures and say, well, which one is the best one to use? So that could take me weeks of digging through the literature to find, do these measures exist? And if not, I have to build a measure and then test it. If I'm lucky, I have time to test it and, and pre-test it and make sure it works. So putting the whole thing together is time consuming. Once I've got my draft, I have to put it through ethics, which is its own uh, time scale. I'm pretty lucky to be at a school where ethics can get back to you within a few weeks to maybe a month. Yeah, uh, we don't schools. want a repeat of the Milgram uh, experiment, right? <laughs> I, I got. I think Milgram got a bad rap, but I can I can talk about that later. But Milgram has always held up as this this immoral study, but I think he actually learned a lot from it, and he wasn't as insidious as people think. But oh, it's it's there's a lot of debates even to this day. So. But so we get our study through ethics, right? So it might, if we're lucky, it gets through on the first pass with minor notes and maybe it only takes us a month to do it, right? Uh, at that point, logistics have to be considered, right? So if we're going to do a convention, we have to make sure, you know, if it's Anthrocon, well, we might have to book hotels and stuff months in advance to make sure that we're getting into Anthrocon. We have to book a table to be at Anthrocon. We have to arrange travel for everyone going. Is it just going to be one or two of us going, or is it going to be an army of research assistants? We are actually having that conversation, or we, we've had it 
uh, months ago about Anthrocon this year, uh, we're going paperless for the first time at Anthrocon to try to keep down our costs a bit rather than, you know, passing out 5,000 surveys, which we've done in the past, that takes an entire army of research assistants that takes printing. We have to print them off, you know, weeks in advance. We got to cart them all the way over to Pittsburgh. Uh, afterwards, I have to take them all home and then manually enter them one at a time for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. My condolences. Um, yeah. So, so we decided to go paperless. Well, that changes the game up, right? So now we don't have to consider things like hauling the, the surveys, getting them printed, but it introduces its own new challenges. Well, now I have to design an online survey. So I have to make sure I'm familiar with the software. I have to design it. I have to test it. I have to make sure that there aren't any bugs in it, that I haven't accidentally changed the coding of something, that I haven't got typos in it. Um, so building it and pilot testing the, the online survey is its own can of worms. So we're thinking about these projects, you know, months in event, getting permission from the con, right? We can't just show up at a con. We have to get permission from the con head. And you don't do that a week before the convention, right? When the con is running around, the con chair is running around on fire, trying to make sure the con is, is going to run. Uh, as somebody who has run a convention or two in the past, uh, yeah, the week before, if you come to me, it, I, I, but tell me to go to hell like, if I'm lucky. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I'll think about it and I'll come back to you for next year. <laughs> yeah. So, so typically, we're we're already think like already um, uh, as early as January, we were thinking about and putting the wheels in in place for Anthrocon in July. And even though we've, I've just finished analyzing the data from Furry Fiesta, which was in March this year, we're already thinking down the line about what we're going to have on the survey for the next Furry Fiesta. So we're talking about a lag time sometimes of six months to a year just to collect the data. Once you collect the data, uh, then it's a, you know then there's more to it, right? Entering the data. If it's paper surveys, you got to enter them all. That can take hours, days. Uh, I'm pretty fast at data entry, and even then. It takes me probably 40 to 60 hours just to enter a thousand surveys into a computer. And that's going like a battle to hell. Once you've entered it all, analyzing the data could take anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, depending on how complex the data set is and what your analyses are. Uh, and even then you're not done because now you have to write the paper up and the paper, you know, if you ever written a term paper for university, you know, that, uh, uh, even if you try to sit down and wing it the night before, that's still going to take you a day or two. In actuality, putting together a proper paper might take you upwards of a month to write if you're really lucky and you've got good collaborators to work with. So maybe you put it together in a month, you, you have this draft now. And again, a paper, that's if your paper only has one study. Some papers require three, four, five studies before publication. So now I run the next study and the next study. And so you might not see the results of the study, for two, three years until I've got all these studies lined up for the paper. And then once you send off the paper, it's not done because it's gonna take two, three, four months for the reviewers of that paper to get back to you. And usually they have notes, right? Either they flat out reject it or they say, well, you have to address these concerns we have. And that might require running another study that might require a whole new rewrite of the draft. Um, that itself could take another two, three, four months. And uh, by the time you're through that, you know, it's now been a year and a half, two years sometimes uh, from when you started the project with that initial hmm to the time it's actually published in a journal. So uh, if it seems like the process is very slow, it's because it is. <laughs> and it's very thorough, too, because it has to be accurate and representing the information well as well, I'm sure. Like, it's, it's remarkable when you see studies right now, there are studies coming out right now about COVID, about the COVID pandemic. 
And people think, oh, well, this is the last word on it. And, and the, the, like, we have studies coming out now that are based on the first numbers from the pandemic two years ago, right? Like a full proper look at it is going to take another, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff in the tubes right now from people that won't be coming out for one, two, three years still uh, before it sees the light of day. And that's, and that's trying to speed things along, right? That's trying to, to expedite it because it's so relevant and important to us now. Um, yeah, so, so for start to finish, there's a lot more to us. And then even with publication, there's all sorts of things you have to consider as well. Uh, I was asked by someone on the survey recently, why don't you publish in open source journals? Which is a very good, so if you don't know, most peer review journals are- um, uh, Closed source. But yeah, they're behind a paywall basically. Yeah. So like if I published in the journal of personality and social psychology, there's a paywall for the average person to access that they have to pay to get into it. That money doesn't go to me, right? The money you pay for a journal subscription, the, the researchers don't get a sense of that. That goes to hiring uh, an editor and, and an editorial staff and a bunch Experts. of other people. Yeah, administrators and stuff to run that journal. Now, um, there's a model that's being pushed forward. That's this idea of open publishing where uh, we'd like to get rid of those paywalls. We want the public to be able to access this data. And I agree wholeheartedly. I would love for the average person to be able to just access our journals. Part of the problem with that is that someone's got to pick up the tab for paying for editors and stuff. Um, people say, well, why don't you do that? And the problem with that is to publish in an open source journal costs upwards of $1,500, $2,000, $3,000 sometimes. That's money that straight up we don't have. Uh, a lot of our research is funded uh, either out of pocket by us or by government grants, which are, are you know fairly modest and we can, you know, if we're, we can spend the money on paying for the hotels so that we can go to the cons or we can spend the money publishing the paper, we can't do both with it sometimes, right? So um, instead, what we often opt to do is go through these paid journals, but then on the side, if anyone emails us and says, oh, can I get access to this journal? We kind of give it to them on the side. We're allowed to do that, we, but we can't post it in a fixed place and say, hey, come download our journal here. Um, but yeah, these are all considerations happening behind the scenes that a lot of times people don't realize just how much administrative behind the scenes uh, stuff there is to do. Uh, I wish we could just sort of whip up a study today and run it online tonight and have the data by tomorrow. It would be so much faster and easier. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, the, 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 that's always the wishful magical thinking of everything, right? It's like, well, it's easy to do this. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that, that that's a that's actually quite uh, eye opening because you mentioned COVID and everything. It's like oh, we are getting information now that's two years old essentially. So that's in some cases. Sometimes they can expedite it much faster than that. But yeah, uh, you'll be seeing a lot of studies coming out now in the next few months. And like oh, why is this coming out a year after, a year and a half after? And it's because like... of the process, and the process yeah. works as we've seen mm -hmm. very often. So other than that, are there any weird, unusual, frustrating things, issues, problems that do arise during uh, during the study or during publication or whatever? Yeah, a lot of things can go wrong <laughs> from start to finish. Oh, Murphy um, is uh, is your friend too, I hear. Yes, yes. Uh, Murphy's Law is absolutely uh, always present in doing research. Uh, in every step of the, the, every phase of the process, something goes wrong, oftentimes, uh, everything from ethics, right? So if, if uh, 
if you get in a day late on ethics, you might have to wait another month for the cycle, right? Which is frustrating. Or maybe for ethics, I, I had before when uh, I started a new school and the ethics board is unfamiliar with my research. I have to go through a whole rigmarole to explain to an ethics board, an interdisciplinary ethics board, what is a furry? I have to start from scratch. And once, you, once you've been doing it for a few years, the ethics board knows what you're doing. But if it's, if it's, if it's got new members, you have to explain what is a furry. You have to explain why am I doing this research and convince an ethics board that it's worth doing. And again, this is a problem we mentioned before. No one takes this kind of research seriously. So oftentimes it's a, a tough sell sometimes to convince an ethics board this is worth doing. Um, in the actual execution of the study itself, websites can go down if it's an online survey. Typos happen. Uh, when I first did the, the very first large scale online survey through First Science uh, back in 2012, I think it was, or 2011, 4chan got a hold of it. So uh, we had to can compete with the fact that uh, about 10% of our data was just garbage data coming in from 4chan. Uh, pretty easy to tell when when every answer is 69, 420, lol. Like it's, it's a lot easier to, to pull it out, but it still worked. That has to be done. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so trolls is something you have to compete with. Um, everything from trying to get to a convention, right? Sometimes, uh, sometimes the world goes through a global pandemic and you have no way of doing convention based research for two years. That happens sometimes. Um, or even Only once every hundred years, hopefully. <laughs> right. Um, even at conventions, right? We, uh, at Furry Fiesta, the one time we set up an experiment, right? It was, uh, we set up a, a computer laboratory in place at a convention and it was just riddled with technical problems, right? Trying to everything from how do we get power to this thing to what happens if your computers crash? Um, what happens if you misplace a box with some surveys in it? What happens if, uh, you know, the, the, the airline loses your box full of surveys as you're coming home from the convention? That's never happened before, but this is, I live in fear of that. Um, yeah, so all kinds of things can go wrong in person at a convention. Uh, afterwards, right, with data management, uh, what, if, what, if, what if you forget to back up a hard drive and you lose all your data from a study and you have to re-enter all of that data again? Uh, in the publication process, what happens if we had this happen before where, uh, I think most of you may have heard the story by now, we tried to publish in a, uh, a journal, uh, a social, not social work, a um, psychology journal for, for clinical psychology to inform clinical psychologists that, hey, there's a problem, furry clients are kind of being pushed away at the door because their, their furry interests are being stigmatized. And we got a response that just said, it's unprofessional to waste our time with this, right? They didn't, real, they didn't think it was a serious submission. Um, so a lot of the pushback comes from the field, right? Uh, running from uh, journals that won't publish our work because they don't see the value in it or it's too niche. So our work almost never gets published in mainstream journals just because the average psychologist doesn't care about furry research. So therefore, you know, our work will never make it into mainstream journal because it's too niche. So we have to get a little creative in where we find to publish it, either in fandom specific journals, or we got to find a way to put a spin on it to say, well, this isn't a furry paper. This is a paper about um, marketing that happens to involve furries, or this is a paper about uh, one of the tricks that we often use is it's a stigmatized minority group, right? So it's a stigmatized leisure group and it just happens to be furries, right? So, but you have to find a way to make your research interesting to people who otherwise wouldn't give a damn. If you sell yourself as a furry researcher, no one cares. Um, and it's a problem that you wouldn't think of. Like you, in your head, you think, well, if the research is good, it should get published anywhere. 
Uh, and that's just not the reality. Your research may not get published in a top tier journal, not because your methods are crap, but just because the journal doesn't think it's interesting. Or maybe they've got a personal bias against you. Maybe they, maybe they, maybe, maybe they, they, they had a, a run in with a furry 10 years ago that soured them on the idea. So just the idea of looking at a furry paper, like, nope, off my desk. Um, yeah, and, and, and even outside of, of the technicalities of or the practicalities of doing research itself, being a furry researcher can be tricky too, right? You have to uh, be careful about how, how high you fly that flag. Um, when I was on the job market looking to get a job as a researcher at a school, um, I tell you, despite the fact that I had uh, 70, 80 publications to my name, I couldn't land a job for the longest time. And, you know, you never, it's hard to know why, maybe I'm just a shitty candidate, it's entirely possible. Um, but I, you, you know, you can't ever shake that fear that maybe, maybe they saw the CV, maybe they saw the furry stuff on there and went, uh, I don't know about that. You know, what, you know, they Google the word furry to see what it's about and they see something on Google and go, well, we don't want him at our school. Right. Yeah, the, the the good old CSI episode or Vanity Fair article or all of that stuff that we keep coming back to in the media would hurt you as a scientist is what you're. Yeah, it, it, it's it was uh, I remember being told I think I've told this story, too. I remember being told um, by by my advisor in grad school uh, that some of the departments when they were reviewing my work and stuff for the they were giving my annual review as a student. Some of the department has suggested that my work was a career killer. That like, hey, if you keep doing this, you're no one's gonna hire you. And uh, it's it's all well and good for me to tell the story afterward and say, well, I got hired, so haha to them. They were right. I I think I got really lucky. Um, but it took me five, almost six years to to land a job in academia doing research. Um, so I think that if you want to to sort of go into this line of research, you do have to be mindful of the fact that. Um, the stigma follows you. It doesn't matter if you're a perfectly professional furry. It doesn't matter um, if the work you do is is exemplary and, and, and perfect. And our work, Lord knows, is definitely not perfect. Um, but you're, you're always going to be facing that uphill battle. Either people trivialize the work or they uh, assume the worst about it or they come in with preconceptions. Uh, so they're all obstacles you got you to work through. Yeah, it's it's... It's a frustrating thing for sure. And coming from like the public side of this whole deal, I'm hearing this. I'm like, why do even in all of this, like you're doing something, you're you're researching something that is unknown, quote unquote. It's open sea, you know, it's nothing but new stuff to discover. And from a public perspective, I'd be like, that's really exciting because we don't know anything like tangible about this. We have lots of ideas, but we don't know what's really all about. So let's learn, you know, let's find out, let's, let's get this information and learn for real what it's all about. And hearing some, uh, you saying, well, you know, there's a stigma, it's seen as unimportant. I'm like, why are we stifling our discoveries and our knowledge of ourselves as a species because of, Oh well, they might be into the sex part of it, you know. It's I, I find that so reductive and so silly in a way. Like, oh well, I don't like my. I need to cut my uh, my 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 uh, my toenails here. Let me take this pistol and shoot my foot off. You know, <laughs> it's kind of how I see it. 
I mean, there is a bias in academia um, to to publish what's already kind of known, not already known necessarily, but like if you if you don't it, it, shooting for something entirely new is really hard to get published, right? People uh, not just because uh, it's it's really out there, but just because people don't know what to do with it, right? Like if I show up and I say, "Hey, here's some furry research." If you've never heard of furries, you're like, "Is this a thing?" Like what? No one's going to know what this is. Do we want to publish that? Um, being able to find ways to anchor it to existing knowledge and to to um, to tell them, to remind them, hey, this this is safe, secure research, right? Like, hey, you published this paper last month on something very similar, so this is a safe bet, right? This is this isn't going to get you in trouble. This isn't going to be um, shown to be garbage and bogus in, in a month from now. This isn't going to be an embarrassment for your journal. Uh, so there is this tendency to kind of play it safe, not just in social sciences, but even in 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 uh, broader fields as well, right? Uh, innovative stuff, new stuff really does face this problem of people don't necessarily want to take a chance on it. So yeah, I, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking I studied in video games, right? And I'm like, this is why we have a sequelitis issue in the video games industry for the exact same reason, you know? So it's it, I find it sad and exciting at the same time to see that you and science have the exact same issues that video game studios are facing from publishers which is well i'm going to invest this time and this money you need to make me more money by doing something safe that is quantifiably has a chance of being quantifiably sold so it's interesting in the way to see that no matter how different things are they always boil down to the same thing essentially I mean, a good scientist has to be a marketer. You have to market your research, which is, it's a gross thought in some ways, right? Yes. You, you really do want to believe that the best science rises to the top. Uh, and you certainly try to do the best science, but you can do everything right. You can do perfect studies and still for factors outside your control, it, it never gets anywhere. It never, never really uh, has the impact you're hoping for. Uh, frustration, but such is life, I guess. Uh, well, that was... That was eye-opening in so many different ways, Nuka. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your process and the process of science as a whole. Uh, Hope it wasn't too boring to, to everyone to hear that long. Well, I, it, <laughs> I at least one person in me found it super interesting and fascinating. But after all this, I think we need time to, uh, you know, rest our brains process. a little bit. That was a lot of information to take in at <laughs> all at once. And I'm a blonde dog. I'm sorry. So I need time to rest my poor little brain. So I guess uh, this uh, this calls for a break. I don't know about you. You probably will want some water after all this talking about yourself and your your, your processes. I need to give my ego a chance to, to recover from all of that. Yes, yes. Let's deflate you a little bit. Oh, inflation <laughs> joke. Womp womp. Womp womp, exactly. <laughs> all right. So, uh, all right, everyone. We'll be back in a few moments after more messages from our not sponsors. Take me home tonight. I just want to show.
good. I took a long walk and took in the sun, and I'm back here now with Nuka. Hi, Nuka. I'm back. Hi, back. I'm Fire Breath. Womp womp. Womp womp. Yes. Parental humor, the best kind. Ah, so so now my brain is all rested and all ready to uh, finish this episode with you. Uh, this was very interesting. It was super eye-opening. Fascinating, even. Would you have any final words, final thoughts for, for our audience about your work, yourself, or science in general, or whatever you feel like adding to this episode? Yeah, um, I guess I would say... I, I feel like you, we get a lot of credit for science and I'll happily take it uh, for for, do it for the research that we do. Uh, I think that we're one of the, the louder people doing furry research. We certainly have no shortage of, um, you know, promoting ourselves on social media and stuff. Um, and I, I will certainly say that we do probably the most work in the field of psychology on furries. Uh, but I definitely don't want uh, to give the impression that we're the only ones doing work on furries. There have been a number of fantastic furry scholars out there. Um, working in other fields, so working in everything from fan studies to, uh, I know there are people who, who do under sort of more more cultural studies. There have been a number of fantastic writers there, um, both sort of people who've been doing work before we came onto the scene. Uh, as early as like the late 90s, there were people doing some, some basic sociological work on the furry fandom. Uh, but what's even more exciting to me now is to see more and more uh, furry scholars kind of popping up in all sorts of different fields. Uh, I've been, I've sat before on a furries um, uh, PhD board. Uh, I know of a number of furries who are just coming through doctoral programs right now, and, and they're hoping to get into various social science fields with a, with an interest in studying furries. Um, just this week, uh, I actually got asked to review a paper uh, for a journal, a fan journal that was about furries. And it was, it was the first time it's happened where I've been asked to review a paper about furries that wasn't, it wasn't one of ours, right? Usually uh, I have to turn it down and say, well, no, no, it's one of ours. I, I'm, I'm one of the authors. I can't be a reviewer on it. But I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know at all. It's, it's a blind process. So I don't know who did this research. And that's exciting to me to see research from people who aren't us on furries. It, 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 I, I look forward to the day when I can, I can pop open a, a journal in a field and see other work on furries in my in my field you can already do it in other fields but in my field it's oh my gosh other psychologists studying furries this is really cool so I, I i love that there's other people doing it i certainly don't want people to think that for science is the first and last word on um furry science research so yeah i'm i'm heartened by that and and hopefully despite my talking about the the problems with doing this research and like some of the setbacks and the difficulties uh, I love the job, and I, I would not want to do anything else, again, except perhaps being a Mythbuster. So if, if I've inspired <laughs> anyone else to want to do it, uh, that's pretty cool. Well, that's that's really that's really great. And uh, thank you very much for, for all your hard work in explaining and bringing our reality to uh, other scholars and the masses, even to a certain degree. You know, it's... It's kind of weird to say this, but it legitimizes, I guess, the furry community as a whole mm -hmm. to the world. If we can say, hey, we exist and look, there's actual science on us and this is how it's working for real. Not just whatever Joe Fox 3264 said today, you know, so that's that's really exciting to be able to say, hey, 
this sub community or this fandom or this community as a whole now because of the size i guess we can't really say we're a sub community of the sci-fi fandom anymore but it's really exciting to see things evolve and we learn more about ourselves doing that and the conceptions that some of us might have might be challenged about the group itself and like when we were talking about earlier about the, the 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 ruining the magic sort of thing you know i'm from the old guard it was a big no no i always thought the new kids you know were, were 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 wrong about this but i understand talking with you and maybe the folks that are listening didn't realize it but i was actually processing in real time that discussion in my head you know so it's challenging to 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 see ourselves in a different way and to understand ourselves better as a group not just individually and I think that's very, very important for everyone, not just the community in itself, but those that will interact with us and in a furry setting, I mean, because it is such a misunderstood and misportrayed, I want to say, in various circles. And the fact that you as a scientist still have issues saying, hey, this is valid research and be told, yeah, but it's for research. Nobody cares seems to 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 just put more emphasis on the fact that it is misunderstood it is misconstrued and you're challenging these things and you and your team are doing a bang job on it and i'm thankful for you guys and keep keep doing it um it's it's really uh it's really humbling from both sides i think it's so, it, it, i will say it is exciting from this end too to have furries take it seriously right it's it's i was always really nervous when i first started doing the work that like, man, you know, I, I'm a new, when I first started, I had only been a furry for a few years. And I'm like, man, they're gonna, they're gonna sniff me out when I'm trying to say something about their community. And I'm, I'm still new to it. Uh, now that I've been in the fandom for, you know, decade and a half or whatever it's been now. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of neat to be able to see that furries have taken to this, right? That, that you don't get a lot of furries saying, ah, screw you guys. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, to have it be received so positively by furries and used by furries. Every time a furry, tweets out one of our studies or gets into an internet argument and pulls up one of our, our studies. Um, it is like that, that, that's how I feel like we've won, right? It's being used on the front lines by furries. And that that's, that's the most validating part of the research to me. Well, at least, uh, you know, only the canines would have sniffed you out if anything, and it would have said, Hey, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, that was super interesting, but, um, uh, I guess uh, there's a few things left to do, which is mostly, uh, <clears throat> Housekeeping. Have you commented on the site yet? It's time to be reminded in housekeeping. And uh, I, I guess I'm gonna be putting on the maid costume today and do the housekeeping myself. <laughs> That's a site nobody wants to see. So uh, thank you very much, Nuka, for your time with us. It was really interesting. Your cast, but you're still our guest today. And uh, I, I wear multiple the other hats. Side of the... I wear multiple hats. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But today you wear the guest hat. And thank you so much for doing this. Um, you will, as far as our listeners are concerned, you will be able to find uh, all of our podcasts on forwhatitsworth.com, which is our site. Uh, it's getting slowly fixed, guys, uh, where, where we still have some issues, but we're slowly figuring things out, all right? Uh, so bear with us while we uh, 
continue working on that. Our Twitter is at for what it's worth. Uh, you can contact us on that through DMs or whatever, or just retweet our episodes. The more the merrier. Uh, we have a Telegram channel. You can message Rue at at WineRedFox to be added to the Telegram chat. Uh, we also have the SpeakPipe, which we mentioned earlier a little bit. So that's speakpipe.com slash F-W-I-W. You can also email us at cast at forwhatitsworth.com or you can find our individual emails on the website. And uh, as usual, you know, uh, tell a friend, you know, the more the merrier and uh, the more people listen to us, the more interesting it is to be able to reach out to you guys and uh, interact with you and do content that you enjoy. As far as yourself, Nuka, do you want to plug anything other than uh, firstscience.com? Well, uh, so I'll mention firstscience.com. So if you if you haven't checked it out, firstscience.com, you can check out our research there. Uh, but also I want to, in a, in a rare act of self-aggrandizement here, or self-promotion, I should say, uh, I mentioned, I might have mentioned to some folks that I'm writing a book this summer. Uh, not just me, my colleagues and I are writing a book. Uh, this is intended to be a tome gathering all of our research from like the last 10, 11, 12 years on furries and put it all in one place. So this is going to be like the definitive uh, collection of fur science research. If you've ever seen one of our talks and I say, hey, this is only a fraction of what we studied. This book will be everything else. So it is uh, so far, it's four months in the making, four months just going back and analyzing 47 studies. Um on, That's a on, lot. More, on more than 20,000 20, furries. So it is a, a tremendous amount of work. I'm writing it this summer. So keep your, your ears out for that because uh, uh, it's going to be big when it drops. So I'm, I'm pretty excited for that. Well, looking forward to uh, buy a copy and uh, read all about it. All right. Well, I guess that's about it. Uh, nothing else on your end? No, I think uh, I'm going to go, go get back to punching people in uh, Cyberpunk 2077. Well, happy punching. Uh, I'm going to go walk some more because walkies are great. So um, this has been Fire Breath. This has been Nuka. And this has been... For what, what it's, it's worth. worth. Wow, that was bad again. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it.